Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest for the first part of this hour is Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller. Miller is the nation's longest-serving official in that position. He's been Iowa's top law enforcement official for some 40 years in total. Uh, Miller was defeated in this year's election by Republican Brenna Byrd. His term ends on January 1st, 2023. Attorney General Miller, welcome back to our program. Uh, thanks for having me. You know, I really enjoyed your program over the years. Thought that, you know, it was it was very interesting and and hopefully, uh, you know, and enlightening for for your listeners. Uh, you always ask ask good questions, and and I try and do my best. Well, we want to thank you for making yourself so available to um, uh, to be, um, you know, in different circumstances, um, offering all kinds of uh, insights into the work of your attorney general's office. And, uh, uh, of course, this this um, part of our program, and a little bit later, actually ask you to reflect on your time in office uh, uh, and then toward the end discuss the latest opioid settlement in the context of previous settlements. Uh, but first, if I could, General Miller, I'd like to start with you with your thoughts on the midterm election results. Now, Iowa voters chose to elect the challengers both in your case and in the state auditor's case, uh, Michael Fitzgerald. You're both longtime Democratic incumbents who, who argued your tenure brought a nonpartisan um, success uh, rate uh, to your office. How surprised were you at the result? Well, I, you know, I was somewhat surprised, but not shocked. Uh, you know, the, the polls got, got close at the end. Uh, you know, the Iowa, the Iowa poll, uh, Ann Seltzer is, is the, is the gold standard. And, uh, in early October, she had me up 16 and at the end she had me up two. So that was, a, that was certainly a warning signal. And, yeah. uh, we, we hoped we could pull it off. Uh, and, but, and came close, got to 49.1%, but, but weren't able to do it. It was just a, Extraordinary wave of Republican votes uh, in in Iowa uh, that uh, that that brought that that about and and Mike's defeat and Cindy Axney's too. Uh, yeah. Looking back, you know, we, we thought we ran a good campaign, still do, but just just you know, what, we weren't able to get to to fifty, got to forty nine, but uh, there, there was just such a composition of Republican votes that that we couldn't get to fifty. Mm-hmm. Do you think a a different campaign message would have been more effective? Um, uh, a little more analysis. Your thoughts. I'd be interested in in, in why you lost. Well, I you know I, I don't think a different message would have would have made any difference. Um, sort of you know the, the, the probably the most the most clear way to see why we lost is to is to look at the uh, at the auditors race. My friend Rob Sand won, and you know just just delightful to to have him have him do that. But what what circumstances did it take for him to win by less than three thousand votes? Um, you know he was between fifty point zero and fifty point one, and you know he outspent his opponent forty to one. He outspent his opponent a million dollars to zero on TV. His his opponent worked in the Reynolds administration, was fired, and sued them. Was semi ostracized by 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 their by their by their campaign, including you know not being part of the rallies of the last week and a half. 
So that's that's what it took to to win by just a hair. Uh, so you know that that's what we're up against, and 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 we just we just couldn't couldn't surmount it. Mm-hmm. Iowa experienced a red wave. The rest of the country. Most of the rest of the country, some very high-profile races, of course, we know about, uh, did not experience a red wave. Um, but here in Iowa, up and down the ballot, a red wave. Why do you think Iowa's different? Well, I think, you know, Iowa, Iowa has moved more towards the Republican side, unfortunately, um, uh, for, you know, for a variety of, for a variety of reasons. Um, <clears throat> probably the most significant is that, that, that we're, we're, we're losing rural voters and working-class voters, uh, uh, you know, way, way too much. And while we're while we're making progress on suburban voters, there's a lot more rural voters in Iowa and a lot more working class voters than there are in suburban voters. You know, we're, the, we're the we're the flip opposite of of Georgia and and Arizona. You know, both of which are overwhelmed by suburbs. And uh, and we're, we're making we're making progress there, but but it's 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 difficult here. Well, why why is the working class um, the rural voters? So why are they not? supporting the Democratic ticket as perhaps they used to in the past? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a whole host host of reasons, um, you know, uh, and in, in, in part because of our, our national party, I think it sends, sends the wrong message at times on, on issues like defund the police, uh, on not connecting up with rural voters or working-class voters, um, in, in, in part because... Um, you know, but both groups of people are, are, are suffering economically, and uh, uh, Trump has, has done really a good job of of energizing uh, them around around those issues. Uh, and so, so I think just a, a huge number of things. But it's it's nationwide. It, it's not it's nothing particular peculiar to Iowa. You know, I also would notice notice note that the Republicans made made quite significant progress in Florida and North Carolina. There was yes some similarities in, in those two states. What change do you believe is coming under um, uh, Attorney General-elect Byrd? Well, I think that, that remains to be seen. Um, you know, as I told her, she's she's got a wonderful job, a wonderful office, and, and you know, she, she'll form the office and take, take her positions. But, uh, you know, I think it's a little hard to predict. Uh, it's, you know, she, she will do what, what she decides to do and be the kind of Attorney General she, she wants to be. Mm-hmm. You've had four, some four decades in office. Uh, what was it like to work with the other party back when you started um, in the um, late 1970s compared to now? Well, you know, we, we, we had, you know, throughout um, some, some really good professional governmental relations with, with Republicans. Um, and uh, that's something that, that I value a great deal. Now it was easier, and there were more of them in the, in in the first part of the of my tenure. Um, you know, worked with quite a few Republicans in in the legislature, and, and still have, but but a, but a but a, a smaller group. But in terms of representing state government, um, you know, and I re- I've represented three governors in their administration. I always believe that you know when the election was over. Uh, you flip the switch to to governing and to to do the kinds of things that um, you know are responsible and make government work, and that's especially true of, of a lawyer where you're where you're giving legal advice and you're representing people. Um, so um, you know, had had some great relationships with department heads uh, for for a long time that that uh, that continued continued to to, to today. 
Yeah. Do you remember a time when, uh, to use your wording, you know, flipping the switch after an election happens didn't sort of flip it to a nonpartisan basis? Would you estimate a year or a cycle, an election cycle, that happened? Well, no. When when I say flipping the switch, I mean flipping the switch from politics to to, to working, you know, working and to make government work. Uh, that's that's I, I'm talking about the positive switch when when I made right. made that statement and and that's that was true for me 40 years ago and it's it's true true for me today including on the transition I think we're having a, a very good transition professionally done. Mm-hmm. Oh, where do you think our, our our state and our country are headed politically in the coming years? Well, if if I could tell you that, I would truly be a genius. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's it, you know there's just so many currents and cross currents and it's you know it's 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 really hard to say, particularly since you know nationwide there's there's such amazing parity. I mean, um, you know the Republicans control the, the House by ten votes, the two twenty two to two twelve. Democrats control the Senate by two fifty one to forty nine, uh, and you know in Biden. Won a, won a relatively close race, and previously Trump won a race where he lost the electoral vote, lost the popular vote, but won the electoral vote. So th- there's this incredible parity between the two parties. So it's it's really hard to hard to say where we're headed. My guest, if you've just joined us, uh, this part of the program, outgoing Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller. Uh, Tom Miller was first elected in 1978. He uh, served from 79 to 91, then returned to office in 95. Uh, he's uh, the longest-serving attorney, state attorney general uh, in in the U.S. Uh, let's talk about some of the, the accomplishments. There's quite a list of really high-profile cases that you've handled out of your offices. Uh, what would you point to as some of the cases you're most proud of? Well, I think I think you know probably the biggest cases and 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 often the most difficult have been the multi-state cases. Uh, you know, when 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 I first became attorney general a long time ago, uh, I guess when multi-states were just starting, and I became a big believer, particularly from a small to medium-sized state like Iowa, that that you know we we could accomplish for our citizens far more in a group of states than we could could individually. That we'd be out out resourced by large national corporations. It was just us. But but working together, we you know we were able to accomplish things that, that we couldn't. And 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 three cases, three multi-states stand out for me. One is one is the tobacco case. I was one of the leaders in the tobacco case, headed the sort of the public health coalition uh, among uh, of attorney generals. Um, and you know that that was um, you know just incredibly large and and meaningful. Uh, the tobacco companies had never paid a dime or a nickel or a penny in settlement or verdict, uh, and then you know paid more than any other uh, industry in, in the history of the country as a result of the settlement. More fundamentally, uh, the use of tobacco and the perception of tobacco was changed by 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 the lawsuit. But then, then we had the the big antitrust case against Microsoft um, that um, that I was the the lead attorney general on, and uh, you know, and and we we had a great partnership with the federal government, the Department of of Justice, uh, Joel Klein, uh, and David Boyce in, in that case, and then the third one was the bank mortgage case where again uh, I was the lead attorney general. 
and you know we we got benefits of 52 billion dollars for american homeowners as a result of, as a result of that case mm-hmm. <clears throat> on the on the multi-state cases what makes those so challenging is it just the the coordination that's required when you have a number of states attorneys generals in, involved or, or competing interests um, are different states um, having having different agendas in these cases well i mean it, it's challenging all the way around um you know, first of all, um, the, the you know the, the three cases I described were <laughs> against you know the, the most powerful corporations in America, the tobacco industry. Microsoft was just uh, incredibly powerful and strong at that time. It was the high point. Bill Gates was an icon, and then the banks are not without their power. So I mean, you have you have enormously powerful uh, uh, defendants on the other side. Uh, they, they have great lawyers and, and spend a lot of money, a lot of resources on, on, on their lawyers. But the, the issues are, are often often difficult in, in all th- in all three cases, particularly the first two. The, the issues were incredibly uh, incredibly challenging. And then you have the states, and you know we have we have this power when we act together. But we're we're 50 sovereigns, so um, you know everybody has an opinion, everybody has a has a say. So you you try and you know and try and work together, bring people together, and have a consensus. And, and take people from the extremes on, on both sides. So when when you look at all those dynamics, you get some idea that it wasn't easy. Yeah. Uh, when I look back at your, your other cases, too, I see for, for decades you've been a leader in stopping the death penalty from being reinstated in Iowa. I think the uh, last um, uh, case of uh, capital punishment in Iowa was in the late 60s, I believe. Um, tell us what's what's your thinking there, and what have you noticed about that debate across the country over the decades? Uh, of course, now with several states uh, having reinstated the death penalty in, in recent years. Yeah, well, I, I was always opposed to the death penalty uh, uh, for, for a, a number of reasons, the most fundamental of which is that, that there's no really good evidence that it's a deterrent. Uh, people commit crimes and murders uh, for just a whole variety of reasons. They don't they don't stop and calculate. So if it's not a deterrence, it's troublesome for me to, or the state to, to take a life. Uh, also, um, the death penalty uh, has been, been a disaster for the legal system, uh, the courts and, and, and the lawyers involved, and the expense of of the litigation over over death death penalty cases, uh, and I've always had a lot of confidence in life without parole in Iowa. That's that's what we have for first degree murder. That's that's worked well. Done, didn't didn't seem to have a change need a change. So, um, you know, I, I we haven't had a lot of death penalty debates recently, but we did earlier in my tenure, and I was always a part of that. Tried to be a you know a significant part of that and, and stand up for. What I believed in, and one way or another, we we always we always prevailed, um, and um, you know, I, and I'm proud of our state in that regard. Uh, you know, we, we our, our last uh, execution in Iowa was uh, was a federal one in the early '60s, uh, and um, the Democrats took control of the legislature in the landslide in '64, and 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 Harold Hughes, who's you know one of the giants in Iowa government, was a you know, a strong advocate against the death penalty, and the legislature, you know, repealed the death penalty. Um, 
Bob Ray was was also an opponent of the death penalty. Um, Terry Branstad was an advocate of it, but um, uh, the legislature never really, you know, came through and, and changed it while, while he was there. And I, you know, I think that was a was a very good thing. Mm-hmm. You also met with bishops and survivors of abuse to gather information on the clergy abuse scandal, and then released. Um, um, the findings of a years-long investigation into clergy abuse in Iowa. Comment on the on the challenges of, of that case. Well, I mean that that's you know, that, that was a difficult investigation for a variety of reasons. But um, you know, I, I I think we we worked through it. You know, we worked through it pretty well given the circumstances. The uh, the bishops, uh, you know, for the most part cooperated with us, and, and we worked with them and. You know, we could see that decades ago that um, there there was um, some some terrible abuse. Any kind of abuse of that type is terrible, for for obvious reasons. Uh, but we could also see that in the early to mid 2000s, um, you know, the number of, of complaints went down dramatically. That that there was a change then uh, in 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 the right direction. Uh, and you know we tried to be helpful to the victims as as best we can uh just you know to 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 be abused in that way and be sort of uh being uh abused by by someone of of religious authority just just devastating for for so many people mhm we we've mentioned a few cases several cases over the last few minutes are there any other standouts in your mind that you'd like to mention or or comment on yeah, um, you know, it's you know, when when I look back, um I, I think we just had a had a really great run for forty years and did did a did a lot of good work and did it at the highest level and I'm so thankful to my staff that, that really did that work and made my reputation. And as I say, we there there are tangibles and intangibles. Tangibles are the cases we talked about. The intangibles are the the quality of the staff and their professionalism and their dedication. And as I say, we we did it our way. We we never compromised on our values or our principles, and um, that I think is is enormously satisfying to me, and and it, it is an important part of our of our forty year uh, you know record. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to have you talk. Uh, the next half hour, we'll be talking about um, the opioid settlement and um, remedies for our epidemic here, drug overdoses. It continues to claim so many lives. And and we know, uh, General Miller, no matter where you live in the U.S., Iowa or other places, um, you've probably heard about or been touched by this opioid crisis. Two-thirds of the 100,000 fatal overdoses in the U.S. last year were caused by fentanyl. Um, the Washington Post analysis uh, says now that the leading cause of death for Americans, 18 to 49, is drug overdose. And and here in Iowa, you know that the rate of opioid overdose deaths has more than tripled over the past 10 years. In in just a few moments, we'll hear from Deborah Krauss, Program Director of Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition. But in closing, I wanted to get your comments on um, your part. Your office has been part of a number of settlements in the past few years with distributors, manufacturers, and others. Uh, The most recent settlement, over $70 million dollars, uh, through agreements with CVS and Walgreens, give us some context for these latest settlements. 
Well, you know, we've been working on this set of issues, the opioid issues, for five to six years, and our staff has worked incredibly hard. Uh, and for, for the reasons of, you know, so much harm and so much destruction for people and their families. Families are very much affected as well, of course. And uh, we've had a whole series of settlements. Uh, um, the biggest ones were a little while back, and they were the three distributors of, of opioids and, and Johnson and & Johnson, and that was about a, a $26 billion settlement nationwide. And but but more recently we've had a, had a real run of of, of settlements um, that are that are approaching that that same twenty six billion dollars, um, and those have been with companies like Allergan, um, uh, McKinsey, Purdue, uh, Teva, uh, Walgreens, and, and Walmart, um, and we're, we're projecting that. That will recover about three hundred and forty-six billion million million dollars. Which was billion, but it's millions. Three hundred and forty-six million dollars uh, to to deal with with this epidemic and and to try and help the people that are affected and try and prevent it in the future. And and think that that's um, you know that, that that that's real important. Um, one case in particular I mentioned, Teva, was in some ways the most difficult. They, they assigned that to us and, and Nathan Blake and Amy Lick, and uh, I, I, I doubted whether they could get it settled, but they did. They did some magic. So, you know, we've had had this, uh, you sort of alluded to it in your question, this run of settlements recently that, that's going to that's gonna boost it up to about $346 million, uh, over a period of years to, to give Iowa a chance to to help people and, and to fight back. Yeah. Are these settlements adequate, do you think? Uh, are these companies being adequately held accountable? Well, we, we you know, we think so, or, or, or you know, or we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't settle. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to calculate uh, what, you know, what, 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 what they should pay given the egregious nature and uh, the enormous harm. Uh, but um, you know, I, I I think the big thing is is helping people, and uh, this this amount of money will be able to will be able to help considerable people, uh, and I and I think that's I think that's that's really really important. Mm-hmm. In the moment that we have uh, left before we say goodbye, uh, tell us about your plans for the future, twenty twenty three and beyond. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to the future. Uh, and uh you know i want to stay active i want to do you know stay active in issues that i enjoy i, I want to do it part time i want to have i want to have some time and you know just sort of trying to figure that out and in no rush to do it i uh i haven't had much time off since law school it was a long time ago <laughs> so i i want to take some time off and figure it out and and stay active and 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 stay involved, but 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 doing things that that I like to do, enjoy doing. All right. Well, we thank you very much for making yourself so available to us here at Iowa Public Radio. Uh, whenever the Attorney General's office is in the news, uh, we wish you all the best, to Tom Miller. We appreciate it. Well, thank you, thank you, and th- thanks for interviewing me so often, and, th- and thanks for your professionalism. You you do you do such a great job. I have a lot of respect for you and and your profession. Well, thank you so much, Tom Miller. Bye now. Goodbye. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera. 
whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisand, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. And we're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. No matter where you live in the U.S., if you've probably heard about or been actually touched, uh, you are a loved one by the opioid crisis. And you've no doubt heard about fentanyl. It's a major problem in our opioid crisis. About two-thirds of the 100,000, let me say that again, 100,000 fatal overdoses in the last year in the U.S. were caused by fentanyl, that opioid. It's now the leading cause of death for Americans ages 18 to 49. That's how serious it is. Here in Iowa, the rate of opioid overdose deaths more than tripling over the past 10 years. My guest this half hour, Deborah Krauss. Uh, she's program director of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition. Deborah, welcome to this program. Hi, Ben. Thank you. I know you have a personal story of addiction to share, but I wanted to make sure uh, that we know what harm reduction is and we know what your coalition is doing. But first, I want to reach out to listeners. Uh, if you, listening to this program, have been touched by the scourge of drug addiction or a loved one, uh, join us with your experience or your question about harm reduction specifically. one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. What is harm reduction, Deborah? Oh, well, that is a great question. Um, harm reduction in and of itself is a love for people and our community um, is the simplest way to put harm reduction. Uh, we meet people where they're at, and we don't leave them there. Um, we promote any positive change, and sometimes that looks like whatever that looks like, right? We are, we are there, and we're walking beside people um, in order to help them live, you know, the great life that they want to live. Mm -hmm. And how is that different than other goals, uh, goals of, of people who don't necessarily agree entirely with harm reduction? Right, right. So we are, you know, at, at IHRC, um, we work to create, you know, this health equity in our Iowa communities. Um, and we do that through advocacy. We do that through um, education, trainings, and drug user health services. Um so we're different in a way where we are present, we are preventative, and we are also a part of recovery. So we have like this whole wraparound services that we do. Mm -hmm. Let's delve a little bit into your story of addiction, and you share that, I'm sure, to help others and reduce the stigma surrounding drug addiction. Where does your story start? Oh, well, that's a great that's a great question. Um, my story starts in my very young teen years. Um, due to, you know, just the way my brain works and functions and um, trauma, you know, from, from being a child and whatnot, um, 
my my story starts when I had a softball injury and I was introduced to hydrocodone, um, and that is was a prescription from my primary you know care doctor, um, and I proceeded to continue to play softball and continue to hurt my knee, and um, I continued to get opioid prescriptions, and at, as a 13 and 14 year old, I didn't have the wherewithal to know that my addiction to an opioid, right, like my body's dependency on that opioid was um, was getting, you know, stronger. Um, and when I say stronger, I mean, you know, my body was getting used to hydrocodone. And so when the pain was still there, I was then asking for something else, something, you know, more. Um, and in my teen years, you know, that more ended up being, you know, I was using Darvacet, morphine, and uh, like pharmaceutical fentanyl patches. And these were being prescribed? These even stronger painkillers were being prescribed? Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I, I had a very privileged drug use um, in that respect, right? And I didn't, at that point, I didn't even know I had a a problem with opiates because I'm getting a prescription. Mm -hmm. And and the, the medical community that was helping you, where did you grow up, by the way? Um, I grew up down in Marion County in Knoxville, Iowa. Yeah. And so the medical community at this time, and we're talking about what, what year approximately? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're talking late 90s. The late nineties, so, so the awareness there yeah. is it wasn't there among among doctors and other members of the medical community. So these opioids were were freely prescribed, much more freely than today, right? Um, yeah, they were, um, and 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 that is no, uh, I, like I am not sitting here bashing my primary care doctor. He was treating what he could at that point, right? Like he didn't um, he didn't know that I was probably taking extra, right? Like he, I didn't tell him that obviously. Um, but yeah, it, it was no, um, no shade to them at all. Uh, he was just trying to, you know, help me live a, a, a better life as a teenager, you know, with a sports injury. Mm -hmm. When did you realize, Deborah, that you had a problem, a serious problem? Was there an event, a turning point you can recall? Um, I don't, um, I wasn't doing anything that other teenagers weren't were doing right in my hometown. Um, alcohol is one of those things in my hometown that is very um, attainable when you're a child, to be quite honest. Um, and I, and I watched everybody's parents drinking, you know, like that's kind of like everybody goes to the garage and drinks. Like that's just what we do in rural Iowa. And I think in a lot of rural places, you know, um, that's how you have your support in your community um, on the weekends to, you know, we have a long week. And so alcohol is very prevalent. And um, I remember thinking, well, like, it's okay. But I didn't know that you're not supposed to mix, you know, opioids and alcohol because nobody told me I was 16 years old. Um, I think that my, like, reckoning of you have a problem is when I was seeking things outside of of a pharmacy. Mm. And when did how old were you when that started? So on the street, I was. Or? Yep, I was about sixteen when that started. And what drove you to that? You just weren't getting the what you felt were strong enough um, narcotics, opioids, 
from your doctors? Um, I liked the, the, the numbing effect of opioids for myself. Um, I liked the fact that, to be quite honest, um, I, I can't say that I would be sitting here talking to you right now had I not had opioids to get me through my teenage years and being able to actually be numb from the trauma and the pain that I did endure. Mm-hmm. And what, how, do, how do friends and family fit in in this stage here when you finally end up um, seeking, uh, seeking help? So my dad, um, my dad was actually um, a doctor at the VA in Knoxville who um, I think he was one of the ones that championed to, to support me. Um, so, and when I say that, right, like people are like, oh, well, you enabled her. And I don't see it that way. I see my dad giving me rides or picking me up at three o'clock in the morning or, uh, you know, really what, however he could help that he thought, you know, was going to better my life, whether that meant, you know, taking me to court. So I, then I didn't have a, you know, (laughs) an arrest warrant for me. Um, so my, my family, ended up being harm reductionist way back in the day before they even knew what it was because um, they did support me and not monetarily, right? Like they weren't going and buying drugs for me or anything like that, but, but they did support me in ways that were beneficial and ways that actually showed me um, that someone cared. Yeah. Whether I lived or died or were in jail or not, you know? Let me remind listeners, Deborah Krause is my guest this half hour, program director of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition. I do want to talk about your coalition in more in depth in a, in a minute, but please finish this story. When did you find, because I understand you had several attempts uh, that didn't work uh, to recover, to get out of this vicious cycle, this addiction, uh, when did you finally get a hold on it and, and uh, recover? You know, um, I can't even say that I'm recovered. Um, I sometimes don't like to use the word recovered because that would mean I would have to go back before I started using, and I, I, I don't think I could go back to that place. That was pretty sad. Um, but I do, um, so I was uh, about 21 years old. I had woke up in jail, and I looked around, and I was like, you know what? I, I really don't want to do this. You know, there's a there's a hurt inside that I need to do something with. And I didn't know what to do. Um, and so it was presented to me when, when my mom picked me up from jail <laughs> that morning. Um, and I had just gotten an OWI and um, mm-hmm. I was drunk driving, obviously, and could harm other people. So it's not cool. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I just looked at her and I was like, I, these are all the substances that I currently use. I feel really sick right now. I haven't used for like six hours. I need to go use, but also I need help. And she was like, all right, inpatient treatment, you go. Um, and I, and I went and I took it seriously. I wanted to be there. I wanted to start healing. I wanted to be done. And I had to detox and detoxing was probably one of the worst experiences uh, in my entire life. And I've had two kids thus far and detoxing worst thing ever um the reason i don't use um opioids or stimulants to this day is i am scared of detoxing so when people what's the worst part of that what is the worst part of that experience yeah it's um it's not only physical but it's psychological as well um so if you could think of 
a lot of, like, let's say the stomach flu, a regular flu, and then you couple that with um, just really, you want to, like, gosh, man, I can't even explain to you how sick yeah. you are. Um, it's really, it's a really terrible experience. Um, and it goes on for sometimes days and weeks. So I did it without medication, and it was terrible. It was yeah. absolutely terrible to my body. We're, we're so glad you're here to, to tell your story so that others can learn and benefit from it. There are others in your life, I understand, many friends who have died from drug overdoses. Can How many? Yeah. Um, at this point, I've honestly stopped counting. Um, it's far too many for me to... Um, I, I, I couldn't sit here. It would take me a, probably a week to figure out um, everyone and everyone's even name and when that happened. Um, at the, uh, yeah, at this point, it's so many. It's yeah. pretty bad. Um, Deborah, tie tie no tie tie. This is so such powerful um, uh, powerful experiences you're re- relaying here. Tie it now into your work, your dedication to the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, how would you characterize the debate here in the U.S., in Iowa, about harm reduction um, over the last few years? The, it's shifted, hasn't it, uh, uh, in your opinion? In my opinion, it really um, it has. Uh, I feel like people, especially in the past you know, couple of years when we've seen um, you know, accidental overdoses just increasing, especially with our youth, um, it, it's like people want to have these conversations, right? Like we want to figure out how we, you know, we have a problem and we want solutions and, you know, harm reduction comes with a non-judgmental so- solutions, right? And it's not just one, it's not one pathway, it's multiple, so many different ways. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, I think having, you know, places like New York legalize um, syringe service programs, right? Like that's really opened up doors and conversations. And even if the conversations are negative, we're still having the conversations and it's planting seeds. And people are realizing like, oh, you know what? We actually don't have to let people hit rock bottom anymore, right? Like that's clearly not working. Our opponents argue, and this is one of the many arguments against harm reduction, and I'm sure you've encountered them all, uh, argue that giving users clean syringes, for instance, encourages the negative behavior. How do you answer a criticism like that? Right. Um, so I personally, um, as myself representing um, IHRC, I would say that, that that's just completely false and untrue. Um, drugs and drug use has been around since the beginning of time. Um, we're not enabling anyone to use. People are going to use whether they have sterile supplies or not. Um, what we're trying to do, right, is give people um, supplies so that they are not harming themselves. We are not spreading, you know, diseases. Um, we're not overdosing and actually dying. So um, I don't see it as enabling, and and you're right, I do hear that very, very often. Um, however, you know, however I can reduce harm, um, that's a win for me. And, you know, if other people don't feel that way, um, 
you know, it's, it's almost like I'm the person that's just reminding you to put your sunscreen and your seatbelt on for regular folks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just the person that's reminding, you know, people who are injecting drugs to like, hey, don't use alone. Hey, like, you know, we care about you. Yeah. Um, it's kind of the same thing, you know? Um, we we only have five minutes left, unfortunately, Deborah. I want to address fentanyl specifically because, as I mentioned, two thirds of the hundred thousand fatal overdoses in the U.S. last year were caused by fentanyl. Now, a leading cause of death for those Americans eighteen to forty nine. What do you say to those who say our focus really should be first and foremost keeping fentanyl out of the country? Do you see it that way? I don't. Um... I, you know, if you get in a car accident and you are having life-threatening injuries and you go to the ER, you're absolutely going to want those doctors to pump you full of fentanyl. Fentanyl, um, I have no morality with it, and so I see it as it is. Um, It's an opioid, it's a pain blocker, and it does a really good job at what it's supposed to do. Um, The problem comes when we don't know it's in our substances, Um, but, but but saying that we're just going to keep it out of, you know, our country is kind of um, in a perfect world. That would be great. That's yeah. just not our that's not our reality. I want to emphasize something you just said, because I just read just a few days, another tragic instance. I think this was in Colorado. Um, five people found dead in a, in a home. They'd had some kind of party. Drugs were involved. And the, as best that they can tell, that they just didn't know what the amount of fentanyl in these pills. And that's. That's a real problem, right, uh, when you buy off the street like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we're, you know, we're buying stuff that is not at a pharmacy, um, we're just going off of what people are saying. Um, and in that respect, uh, you know, fentanyl test strips are a really good tool to have with you. Um, some people, you know, are just using recreationally. So like like you said, like a get together at a friend's house, right? Like someone has let's say cocaine and it has fentanyl in it and everybody takes a line. Nobody has used fentanyl ever before and they're snorting it and it's a lot, you know, well, we could have, we could have avoided all of that had they had access and the resources to have a fentanyl test strip to know like, Oh, okay. There might be fentanyl present in here. We're not going to do all of this. Right. Or we're going to maybe not even use it at all. Right. Yeah. Like we don't know what people are going to do to, to remove the risk, but there's, you know, we have tools that can help people. We have just a couple minutes, a couple of quick questions. How much of an impact will the billions of dollars in settlements across the U.S. to individual states, the settlements uh, with drug makers, distributors, how, how much uh, how much hope do you have for the impact that will make on this scourge? Um, I mean... I don't really have an opinion on that, I guess. Okay. Well, hopefully some of those monies will come to perhaps a harm reduction uh, here in Iowa in, in the future. W- describe your vision of, of where you hope our uh, you hope our state, our country will be in terms of perhaps attitude change and policy changes in the coming years to, to stem drug addiction and overdose. Where do you hope we will be in in the near future? You know, in the near future, I hope we are looking at our fellow community members and we're supporting them in what they choose to do, you know, with anything. Um, I'm hoping that lawmakers um, can look and see, you know, we did, um, we were so graciously given um, some funds from 
the uh, AG's office, and that kind of legitimizes, you know, our our organization in a way where now legislators can now look at us and be like, oh, okay, you know, like they are doing really valuable work. Um, and I think what it boils down to for me is finding the value in loving our community members, you know, and that includes all of these marginalized communities that are otherwise kind of made laws about and not with. And so I'm just hoping that, you know, we can all work together to help keep our friends alive. Yeah. Are you hopeful the coming session, for instance, of the Iowa legislature, uh, we'll see some movement here, some funding for harm reduction, a greater awareness as well? You know what? I, I really am. Um, I really am. I really mm-hmm. am. Yeah. So I'm hoping I'm hoping we get some more um, people on board with harm reduction and, you know, the fentanyl test strips uh, legalization and um, our Good Samaritan law kind of revising that so it works better for people. Um, yeah, I'm I you know what? I'm actually really looking forward to the legislative session and, and having um having those conversations with people and hopefully seeing that, seeing that benefit more Iowans. Yeah. Well, what's the key? Just a few seconds left. What's the key to winning over skeptics? Do you, have you found? You know, um, it, I think it all boils down to uh, logic, love and empathy. Um, because I know, you know, for me, like I don't like attending funerals and I don't think a lot of other people do as well. Um, and the other thing is, is this is starting to really affect our youth. And when, when we see, you know, such a rise of an increase in accidental overdoses with our youth, um, it's really time for people to step up and, and be a champion for harm reduction and getting the education out there and, you know, supporting everyone. Deborah Krause, thank you so much for sharing your personal story and uh, your work as program director of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition. Thank you, Deborah. Take care. Thank you. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. Tomorrow on this program, special holiday programming Thursday, um, a conversation I've had with the outgoing state treasurer, Michael Fitzgerald, also a tribute uh, to former UI president, Sandy Boyd. That's what we'll address Thursday of this hour. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.